Our good friends at Johnny O welcome you to this episode. And if you've listened to Rich Take on Sports, then you know two things are important. Sharing the impact of sports in people's lives and the Johnny O clothing brand, blending those East Coast classic styles with a SoCal vibe. I've been wearing Johnny O for several years, and now you can as well with 20% off your first order by using the promo code ARICHTAKE at johnny-o.com. Live your best life with the Johnny O style and use promo code ARICHTAKE at johnny-o.com for 20% off your first order. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 154. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. We all know that there are many factors in our lives that lead us in various paths from the influence of family or even the impact of mentors. And for Jonathan Gant, both have played a big part in his life. Jonathan has helped lead the digital transformation for Clemson University Athletics beginning in 2013 and continues that today as Associate AD for Creative Solutions. His team's work has helped the Tigers earn recognition from Forbes, Sports Business Journal, Sports Illustrated, and others. He would begin understanding the power of social media and digital content while working for Ripken Baseball and the Tampa Bay Rays in media relations roles before helping Clemson Athletics become a nationally recognized leader in social and digital content. Our conversation with Jonathan Gant. Jonathan, thank you so much, man. I greatly appreciate it. And you have been part of this podcast for a long time, even though now I'm finally getting you as a guest. It's long overdue, but... Back in 2017, when yeah. I started Rich Take on Sports, and I actually reached out to you, and you've been part of this journey. So now, thank you for being a guest. Of course, yeah. Thank you for having <laughs> me. I remember uh, that initial launch and uh, talking to you about it, and it's been awesome to see the development of it and all the cool people that you've had on. And so, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to be on. Well, now it's hit the pinnacle because yeah, you're a guest, come right? Now. Come on now. Let's not fool the listeners. Let's set the bar a little bit lower. No, come on. I'm setting this bar high with yeah. you as a guest. I'll do and, my best. And I, I would have to say just you've been always so open to offering advice and looking at opportunities to help people. Mm-hmm. And it seems that you do that quite a bit. Is that something that has been ingrained with you that you early on you can remember or is it something that you've experienced and you wanted to then pay it forward because people have helped you out over yeah, the years? That's a good question. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because uh, I, would, I would want to be that way. Uh, so I'm glad that I've, I have been that way. And I'd like to think that I would naturally have been that way no matter what, but I can definitively say that it's because a lot of the people, of, of the mentors that I've had in my life, who people who had really no business being gracious or kind or, or helping me, 
it didn't benefit them in any way, but they did it. And it made like, I mean, there, there's a long list of people like that that I can think of in my life that have helped me. And there's been a number of times where, they, where I've said, thank you, how can I thank you at the end? And they say something to the effect of, you'll have an opportunity to, to help people at some point and you should make sure that you do it. And so I've taken that seriously and it manifests itself a lot of times with, because I'm on a college campus I get to help college students a lot, yes. right? You know, and lots of them looking for job or career advice. And I, I think it's because, like I said, hopefully I would do it anyway, but I think it's because of those folks who, when I was a college student, was a young professional that people would answer my emails or, or when I stopped them in a conference in the hallway, <laughs> they would stop and talk to me. And because of the, what they told me uh, that I have tried to be very, very good about responding to students and helping them with that just because I've had so many people do that for me. So I, I can definitively say that that's a big reason why. Well, it makes a big difference. It, it really does. And I, I think that's what continues somewhat of the, the ecosystem that people can get better because they've got mentors and then they want to pass that type of experience on to others. Yeah. And I imagine you get to see some of the previous students that are that have been here and what they're doing now oh, yeah. and yeah. you get to see how they've been lifted up and it's amazing it's, it's, it's incredible right? a, uh, especially coming to Clemson I did not know that that would be an aspect of the job that has easily been the most fulfilling part of the job is is meeting these student assistants you know bringing them onto the team seeing the impact that they have while they're here and then seeing these amazing places that they go to, and we've—I I like to say—we've got little Clemson flags planted all over the country oh, yes. at these different organizations, and um, and just really proud of uh, to know all of them because a lot of really good people have come through here and are, are now doing great things in all different places. But I'll tell you a quick story. Your question made me think of uh, one of the formative things that happened in my professional career when I was starting out was I went to the baseball winter meetings. So every year, Major League Baseball has, it's like a conference where all representatives from all the teams come to one single place. And usually it's in Orlando, sometimes it's in Nashville, and that year it was in Nashville. And I went to Middle Tennessee State, which is in Murfreesboro, about 45 minutes east of Nashville. And at, I wanted to work in sports, and I was a big baseball fan. And I went, <laughs> I went to the winter meetings with like no just no business being, I had no, I had no yeah, real no reason, reason to be there, to be there yeah. except that I was just trying to track people down. And I, this <laughs> was back when Kinko's was still a thing, went to Kinko's and made business cards. And I kept at least one of them. It's in my house somewhere in one of those memory boxes, but it says Jonathan Gant, it says baseball media professional. <laughs> uh, I failed to realize that you have to be paid in order to be a professional, but I called myself a professional. And so I would, I would literally stop like, Anybody that I could recognize in the hallway. And so like Buster Olney, who's an ESPN reporter, oh, of course. Tim Kirchin, who yes. everybody in baseball knows, people like that, like it was literally like a 20 year old walking up to them and stopping them from like doing what they were there to do. But they, they didn't like reject, they didn't Heisman me, like they, they actually would sit and talk to me and give me good advice. And uh, if people like that, who were, you know, where they were and were certainly busy at the time, were willing to stop and help, like, who am I that I wouldn't be, able, be willing to do the same thing for anybody who asked? So uh, I, I do keep that, that business card on file just in case I ever need to pull it back up. I need to see that at some point. Yes, I love how you, hey, you might have been using that term yeah. loosely, professional, but why not? Very loosely, right? absolutely, yeah. <laughs> In terms of then 
your desire to be in baseball. How early on was that? I mean, have you always been a baseball fan? Was that your first kind of gravitational pull into sports, yeah. baseball? I'm the youngest of four, and my family is like, everybody loves their family, and, and I'm not saying I have some special love for my family, but like very, very close-knit family and very close siblings. And, like in uh, what ages? So, um, let's see, my older, I have two sisters and one brother. My older of the two sisters is 11 years older than me. Uh, and then my brother is six years older than me. And then the younger of my two sisters is three years older than me. Okay, so there's some age difference. But you're gap, saying yeah. that you and, were close uh, Super though. close. And they, like, there was no, they were, my siblings have been so good to me my entire life. I mean, I hit the jackpot when it comes to, to family. And real quick, two of us are left-handed. There's four of us. Two of us are left-handed, two of us are right-handed. Okay. Two of us uh, have blue eyes, two of us have green eyes. Two of us were born in St. Louis. Two of us were born in Columbia, South Carolina. Two of us were born in August. Two of us were born in September. Two of us born on the first. Two of us born on the twenty-fourth. I'm probably missing one or two, but anyway, there's some, there's some symmetry uh, yes. to to the Gantt family. So anyway, why, the reason why I give you that background is because like a lot of what I've ended up doing has been influenced in some way or shape or form from family members. So I did love sports. My I've loved sports my entire life. The reason why I wanted to work in baseball at the time which is funny to look back on. I don't think I would have recognized it at the time, but uh, it's because my brother had gotten really, really into baseball at that time. He'd always liked baseball, but he got really into it. And I think that's what made me want to work in baseball was because uh, my brother's really into baseball. I want to work in baseball. I, I think most of it was subconscious. But that's really why I was so into baseball at the time was because my brother was at the time. It was an aspect also that you looked up to your brother or is it just because he was involved in it? Like he's the best big brother. He's six years older than me, right? He's not like, he's not close to my age. That's right. But he let me hang on, uh, be a hanger on my entire life. And he never, he never uh, excluded me from anything. Like he, he was, you know, whatever in like sixth grade, for example, we play street hockey in, in St. Louis. And he would let me go out there and play with his friends who were all six years older than me. Now, I think that actually made me better at sports because from an early age, I was playing with, with people twice my size and six years older than me. But that's, again, I don't know how much of it was conscious growing up, but I can look back on it and say, oh, I was doing that because of Jason, because of my brother, you know, because I, I wanted to do something that was interesting to him or, or be able to spend more time with it. That was why I was in Murfreesboro because he, he, was living in Nashville, and uh, he was in the music business, for instance, and I was getting a music business degree from MTSU and was very close to going into the music business. So I think that was, you know, him and my dad have been very, very influential in what my interest areas were. It's not to say that I don't have any of my own, because of course I do, but I think a lot of the direction that I've taken in life is because of my entire family, but, you know, the men who, that I look up to in my family, certainly my dad and my, my brother. Yeah, they definitely had an impact yeah. uh, from that Still perspective. Do. Yeah, I, I imagine they do. And I guess, how long were you in St. Louis? Because that's not a bad baseball town either. It's not a great baseball <laughs> town. That played a factor in it, too. It's, it's fun to be a Cardinal yes. fan, you know. So um, I was born in St. Louis, uh, and we were there until I think it was about 10 years old, maybe. And then we moved back to South Carolina. My parents are from outside of Columbia, South Carolina. Their families are from there. And so my grandparents were getting a little bit older. So that's why we moved back from St. Louis. My dad had gone to St. Louis for seminary school. And so we, we lived there, I think it was 10 years total, or maybe 15 years total. I, I was 10 years old when we moved back. 
And so we still love St. Louis very near and dear to our heart. Yeah, what were your thoughts when your parents are telling you you're going to move from St. Louis? I don't know. I know that I cried the day we were moving. <laughs> um, I was still pretty young. I, it's hard for, I don't know what my feelings were. I think I was actually excited because we were, we were going back to, like I, everybody loves visiting their grandparents, right? And so to go back to where, because we had vacationed in South Carolina because we would go see family. Oh, I get to hang out with my grandparents all the time. So I think overall I was probably happy, but I'm also very, very glad that I was born in St. Louis. Uh, and then I, I consider myself a Midwesterner, even though my formative years were more in South Carolina. But St. Louis still holds a special yeah, place you have in those our roots. heart. Yeah, yeah. I've only been to St. Louis a handful of times, and I wish I could spend more time there. Great city. It is a great city from what I've been able to witness, again, just from a limited experience and especially from a sports perspective. Oh, yeah. They love Absolutely. their sports they in do. St. Louis. And that was probably a part of why I was so into sports, too. You know, and, uh, and it was a great city to grow up in. My, my mom, who I, I'm glad that I've gotten this from her, she was so great at, uh, we didn't have a lot of money growing up, but she, but she I, didn't, I never knew it because uh, we, we had a great, I had a great childhood. And she would find all these things to do in St. Louis that didn't cost us money to go do. And uh, there's a lot there from, from that standpoint, from a family standpoint, to go and experience and see and do where you can live in a suburb, but still get some of those, those resources from a big city. So yeah, great city. I, we used to go back every year. I haven't been back in a while now, but yeah, I still consider that kind of a, a big part of who I am. Of course. The music side, though. Yeah. I didn't know this. Yeah. So <laughs> tell Most me. Most people don't. <laughs> yes. Is, is this... Situation? Were you in a band? I mean, what instruments do you play? I mean, yeah. So I know I know enough. I have enough musical ability to be dangerous, but I'm not a musician. Like I can play a little bit of guitar, and like I, my claim to fame is that I, my brother was in a band. He is now a, he's now a contracted songwriter. He's actually living the dream with Sony. Like he's he's a paid songwriter, which wow. is amazing. Uh, he jokes that he was an overnight success. It only took 19 years. <laughs> To accomplish it, but like, boy, he's such a great story of, of somebody who, you know, to, to borrow Coach Sweeney's phrase, he bloomed where he planted, where he was planted, whatever role he was doing, he did it amazingly well, worked really hard, and just kept uh, getting opportunities because he people knew they could count on him, and now he's getting to fulfill that dream of being a, a songwriter, which is really amazing. I can't even begin to fathom how it seems so difficult to be a songwriter. I know it's just mind-boggling. Well, boggling, he's a so. professional at it too. Like the way he can crank out. It's a creative thing, right? Most of the time you think yes. you, need, you need creative energy and juice and inspiration and all that. And, and you do. But he, uh, you know, he can write songs every day and, and he can do all the production on the demo tracks and like he can play a variety of instruments. He, he really is amazing. So I, I, again, that my interest in music mostly probably came from him. Now my dad, same thing. He was, he's very musical as well. And so there was a period of time where I was more into it and learning to, to play better. I don't know if I actually said what my claim to fame was, but he was, he was in a band. I, I filled in for bass one time for his band, and I played bass at least uh, at a mediocre level that it wasn't too noticeable, that it was terrible. <laughs> and the drummer, uh, Aaron Sterling, is now the drummer for John Mayer. And so okay. like, I was the rhythm section with John Mayer as drummer. That's my, my claim to fame. So um, I got into music. I was going to get into music business, I was a music business minor. I actually had a internship finalized and set to go working for Music Row magazine because I, I also loved writing. That was my thing. Was I was going to be a writer, and so I was all set to work with Music Row magazine. And then uh, 
the guy who was the media director of media relations for the Nashville Sounds, the AAA baseball team, I had interviewed him with at, at those winter meetings, actually. I love it. Coming back. He had already filled the internship, his internship position, but he was like, oh, if anything happens, I'll, I'll let you know, stay in touch. He calls me like uh, a couple of weeks before the season's about to start and says, hey, the, the guy who was going to do it backed out. Do you want it? And so then I had this choice of do I do the internship with Music Row Magazine or do I go work for this minor league baseball team? And like, it's really interesting, those kinds of choices, because like, I would not be sitting in front of you today no, you if not. I had done the Music Row Magazine thing. But I did the baseball thing, and I am sitting in front of you today, and we're having this conversation. But that was kind of where I officially started moving formally down this working in sports path. Was that I could have easily been working in music. Was that a hard decision for you, and why did you make that decision? <sighs> it was a hard decision for me. And it's hard even to remember what like the what carried the day in terms of why I decided. I honestly think it might have had something to do with uh, my brother was super into baseball at the time. <laughs> um, yeah, because both of them were like kind of focused core responsibilities would be on writing. You know, there were other aspects to each of the jobs. But yeah, do you feel you had more of a gravitational pull to, towards sports yeah, than music at the end of the day? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I love both. I'm a big appreciator of both, but I, I was a sports kid growing up, and like push comes to shove, I'm probably a, a sports guy, and so that probably had something to do with it. Well, we need to now make sure to emphasize your claim to fame. I mean, you were a <laughs> baseball media professional, right. <laughs> and now yeah. and you also you lots, know, of the, lots of highlights, lots of my early days with the music side as well. That needs to be on your LinkedIn or Instagram yeah. profile somehow, right? Well, I think it's best that that stays <laughs> undiscovered. I've probably said too much already. Uh, and so the writing aspect, yeah. which again, I'm always fascinated with people that have the ability to craft stories, mm -hmm. craft, things in writing. Because that's a whole other skill set as well. I'm talking about being creative, yeah, uh, yeah. creative juices also. So was that something that early on you've always had this knack as far as being a writer? Because I would also have to, I think I would put you in the category, especially now and what you're doing as a storyteller. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Has that always been something that you I think felt so. that way? Yeah, I think so. I I would definitely consider myself like a creative person. And when I think back on like being a kid, like I I enjoyed create traditionally creative things. Like I enjoyed drawing and writing. And me and my brother would make little home movies, and like that was a lot of fun for me. And the cool thing about my job now is like I there's I actually said this earlier today, and I say it often. That like it often feels like I'm a little kid making movies with my friends. <laughs> with what we do here. There's a lot of that, there's a lot of that in it. It's a much bigger organization. Obviously, you're not showing it to your family members, you're showing it to millions of people, but uh, in its best moments, it's, this, it's really the same thing. So yeah, I definitely think that I've always been drawn to that sort of thing. The writing, specifically, I, I think I've naturally had some ability there that at various times I've worked hard to actually develop and same thing probably in the video editing and, and overall storytelling, uh, you know, skills. But there was a period of time where, like, writing, I wanted to be a screenwriter in Hollywood. I, I've had some various interests. Yes, you have. <laughs> uh, apparently I've settled on entertainment with sports, music, and movies. But, you know, really, I think that's what I'm best at. You know, we've had so many talented people come through here at Clemson in our creative team who can do just absolutely amazing things with 
motion graphics and, and static graphics and video and uh, photography. And I can do a little bit of those things. Um, anybody who's worked here will not, will, would never tell you, hey, he's a great graphic designer <laughs> or a video editor or something like that. Like I can do enough to get the job done, but I let the experts be the experts. But where I think I can come in and really contribute high values when it comes to writing, like script writing or something like that. And so I do enjoy when I get to write, but to your earlier point, to, to take a step back from that and broaden it, whatever the medium is, I do very, very much enjoy it. And trying to intellectually learn more about that over the course of my career so that I can take whatever natural instincts and ability that I have and use more knowledge about the formulas and the science. So because it's art and science, you know, take the creative parts of my brain and combine it with, you know, the analytical and scientific parts of my brain and, and try to be a better storyteller and try to make sure that those stories get in front of everybody that we want them to get in front of, which is a whole different part of it, is, uh, has been a lot of fun. Really, really interesting. And from a perspective of... I told you I could be verbose. No, hey, I'm I the same way. Are you kidding me? Here? No. <laughs> I'm the most verbose around. At least I didn't start from the day I was born. <laughs> yes, we'll get to, to We can go back to the hospital. We'll, we will rewind to back, back to that. I, I would ask you, though, also just, because I've always been fascinated with people in terms of they have God-given abilities mm -hmm. and certain skill sets that they have and yeah. talents. But it, how much is there a perspective that you can also get better at that mm -hmm. by training? Is there, you know, obviously we look at sports and yeah. there's certain aspects there's just some things you might not able be able to do athletically. That's right. Not everybody is born with the height and athletic ability of LeBron James. Exactly. Yeah. So, but you could shoot free throws. You, you, can, can. you could have the same free throw percentage. Very good point. Yeah. That's right. So, from a like a, a talent of like writing, mm -hmm. you know, is that something that people can learn to develop as well through training? Hundred uh, percent. And I, and as you ask that question, I think of something that's come up a couple times here because we, we for instance, I talked about student assistants mm -hmm. and they apply to work here. Okay, and uh, understandably, the, the other full time personnel that we have in our department, people who are like expert graphic designers, when they get some of these student applications, you know, the expert, the full time video or the full time graphic designer, they may look at the the samples, you know, of, a, of an eighteen to twenty year old. It might it just might not look that great you know and you've got some legitimate concerns about can this person do the work and what I've come to realize from experience over doing that for however many years is like there is a lot that you can teach there there is a lot of development that you can have but there is something that you can tell even from somebody's early work of whether they have it or not and I hate to say that because it's so gray and uh, unquantifiable or whatever but there's a, when it comes to photography and videography, there's what I call like, you have the eye or you don't. And even if somebody's not technically perfect, I could tell whether they have the eye or not. So yeah, I hate to say it because you never want to exclude anybody or, or um, you never want to discourage anyone from trying to, to pick up these skills or something like that because you don't want them to feel, well, I wasn't born with it, so I can't do it. Because it's not that. But I do think there's probably a, a ceiling if you're not if you're not born with some of that innate ability, so it's a combination of both. I absolutely think that you can really be you can be good if you put in the time and effort and have and, and develop the knowledge and skill and all that. I really think you can. I've seen it happen a lot, but there is some element to it of 
how good you can be depends on whether you have some natural ability. Agreed, 100%. I think there is an aspect. God has touched certain people differently mm-hmm. in terms of their skill sets and where they are. And Going back to when we were talking before we started recording, just that I tried to walk on the basketball team here at Clemson, and I knew I had progressed over the years of getting better as a basketball player. But then when I was on the court with those guys, I was like, okay, <laughs> that's different. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? And, and I could see it very quickly. Yeah. Uh, so I know there is an aspect, there is an it factor that some people have in whatever skill set you know, that uh, they present. But I do believe you can train to you know, improve and, and get better yeah. you know, from, from that standpoint. I had a similar experience. With, I was a basketball player, too. We haven't talked about that. Oh, we haven't, yes. No. Uh, so let's I, dive into uh, the love of basketball, then. I, I, was a, I was a good high school basketball player. Okay, that's how I would quantify it. And I had a similar realization that you did. Mine was at a summer camp while I was still in high school. And I was at Bob Gibbons summer camp. Ironically, it was in Murfreesboro oh, before I'd ever been course. to Murfreesboro. Before. No, that camp very well. Okay, there you go. Yes, so, Bob Gibbons, big name. I went, and um, we're just doing like three-on-three half-court drills or whatever. And there's this, there's this, I was a point guard, of course, because I'm small in frame. You can't see that on, on the podcast, <laughs> but, but I'm not I'm not LeBron James. And, um, and there was uh, another kind of relatively small point guard, and small in height, but I didn't have an appreciation for the fact that this guy was built like a tank until I tried to set a screen on him. <laughs> and I was so little, I could get away with like setting screens with my elbows up. Like I'm uh, to visualize it, I'm like sticking my arms and my elbows out right now. Whereas normally, like you got to put tuck your your arms in. Dude uh, puts his forearm into my left bicep, and I thought he broke my arm. <laughs> I I lost all use of my arm at that point. Now it was fine. Uh, I hadn't broken anything, but it, the thing over the course of the next forty eight hours turned like yellow and purple, and uh, I was just like. Okay, I don't know. So when they were questioning, why is he using his left hand? Yeah, <laughs> we knew which I shot left-handed, by the way. So <laughs> oh, that was goodness. that was enjoyable, and yeah, that that was like a moment that I can look back and I was like, that's one of the smaller guys that just did that to me. And so yeah, there is a limit here, and I probably reached it. So I was gonna play college basketball, uh, D three, even I'm not couldn't, couldn't even get up to your level. And at Washington Lee, I did go to Washington Lee in Virginia, but never actually. I had played like nonstop year-round for like six years with AAU and all that sort of stuff. And it, and it was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. Did so you I get burned out? Play. Absolutely. And I really haven't picked up a basketball since. Is that right? And that was after like night and day, everything was basketball, basketball, basketball for like a lot of my teenage years. What was the big tipping point then to burn out just like that? Um, there was, it was a lot. Uh, I had a situation where I was a, a sophomore. that I always played a year up. And so, like, that was good, right? That's great, you know, yes. Getting, uh, that's what you would want, ultimately. That's, that's a positive. But I went from being a very confident basketball player to, because of that, losing a lot of my confidence. And in particular, I got called up to play varsity as a sophomore. Normally, you wouldn't play until you're a junior. And, like, I never played as a sophomore. And so if I had been on JV that year, I would have been probably the best player on the team and, and would have had all sorts of confidence. And uh, I mean, you never know. Maybe things would have gone poorly, but playing with my age group, it would have been very different than the yeah, experience that I've had, which is like sitting at the end of the bench and, and getting very discouraged. And I just didn't 
I didn't have the the right tools uh, mentally at the time to to be able to handle that adversity. I wish I could go back, and and it just wore on me and wore on me, and it wasn't fun anymore. And there was just a lot of anxiety associated with it because I wasn't confident um, in it anymore. I had a little bit of a of a non traditional. Like I'm right-handed, but I shoot left-handed because my brother shot left-handed. There's, I keep coming back to my brother, so I'm shooting with like my non-dominant hand. So I had a little yes. bit of a non-traditional delivery, like on my shot. And like as you get older, coaches try to train that out of you, and so I lost confidence in my shot. So anyway, long, long way of saying, it was a confidence issue that led to it just not being fun anymore. And then you combine that with still doing it all the time. And once I got to college, where there was like a legitimate change in environment, I was just like, well. That's a natural. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, and so I did. I, I can definitely understand that. Uh, and we're going deep into the. Well, and obviously, anything, I should be sitting on, laying <laughs> yeah, on the so couch over we there. We do have a couch right here. Yeah. We can jump you on get there. Your notepad out. Yeah, <laughs> get Doctor Bill Louder. That's right. <laughs> that worked over here, Clemson, yeah. as well to to help out. But you're right. Once you lose the confidence, mm-hmm. and it's funny, just going back to even what we were talking about earlier. Again, before we started recording, just me being a college basketball coach, and I think that was me not getting back into college basketball, there was a little bit of lost confidence that, you know, was I able to be, and I was low division one, but it was still division one. And, you know, that I think factored into my decision to move away from that. And I still look back on that. I'm like, why didn't I stay with coaching college basketball, even though I've got friends who are still in it and they're like, you made the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this life is very difficult, you know, at times in college basketball. Fear is a killer, isn't it? You know, Big time. You see, and as, as a parent, like, you, you, you want so badly for your kids to, to not have fear get in the way and for, for them to be confident, you know, because there you got something that you were super passionate about, and I'm describing different things, and fear got the best of us, you know. It sure did. And it's a shame to, when that happens. It really is. How much does that affect your job now in terms of you're putting stuff out where millions of people are watching or viewing or reading. Is there any times where it's you're all right about to press send? I don't know. (laughs) Should I press send? And do you have those moments? Yeah. Rich, I never thought about that before. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, Sure. Yeah. And, uh, Sometimes it's a good thing. There, there is healthy fear, for instance. Yes. You know, when you're standing on the edge of a cliff, you know, that fear is telling you not to jump. That's a good thing. You it's know, the some, adrenaline, sometimes, yes. And so you got to pay attention to that. Is there a reason that you're hesitating, mm-hmm. especially in this job, you know, where you're, you're doing stuff that shows up to millions of people and you're representing not only the organization, but you're representing all the people in it, you know, because by association. So I think that's a, that's a healthy, good kind of emergency break that anybody who's responsible for pressing the button should have. I get concerned when, when somebody doesn't have that kind of, is this going to be okay? Because this job, you know, run, running social accounts and, and publishing to millions of people, like, that's a good thing if you're a little bit slow to the, oh, yes. to the trigger. That's right. So I don't know that it's apples to apples. Uh, I don't think it is apples to apples to, to what I was experiencing, you know, as an adolescent or whatever. I think it's a much more mature and healthier, reser- you know, conservative approach that I have to, to some of these things now that I think is actually helpful to the job if you're a little bit 
if you're going through all those filters. You yeah. Know? Whereas if you're shooting a basketball, you don't want to be thinking about all these million different things. You want it just you to know? be natural, reactionary type of exactly, thing. Exactly. Yeah. This is a little bit different. Of course. You know, you want to be very methodical and uh, and sure before you ever press in. So how did you become a cast member? <laughs> in Disney World. <laughs> in Disney World, yeah, it was important. For anybody who's been listening this long and got to that point, I would not have been in any movies. Uh, okay, boy, I'm just sticking with the theme here. My sister did it, and so I did it. So it's all That's about That's really about again. as simple as I could make it. She did it, and uh, she did the college program. So Disney has this great college internship program uh, where if you've ever been down there, there's actually a lot of the, the cast members, the employees, are college students because they come from all over the country, all over the world, to come do that for either a semester or a semester and a half. And uh, my sister did it. She had an amazing experience. She stayed down there. And uh, as they say, she became friends with Mary Poppins. She was Mary Poppins, for anybody, <laughs> for anybody who doesn't know the, the, the code word there. So she had like this amazing Disney experience. It's pretty, I got amazing siblings. Don't I? I have, you I have do. A, I have an They've older done sister. Incredible things. Older sister who started her own business in the flower business. And has and did that 20 years. I got a brother who's a contracted songwriter, you know, working for Sony. And I got a sister who was Mary Poppins and now has <laughs> now has three amazing children. And so um, she did that and and encouraged me to do it at the time. Like because I wasn't playing basketball, the college experience was just maybe struggling a little bit in that regard. And so was looking for something to to kind of get excited about and get invested in. And certainly it was. It was transformative for me. It was really, really great, and uh, it's not a bad deal when you're pulling out your your staff parking lot is right outside of uh, at the time the Disney MGM Studios. I think it's called Hollywood Studios now, and you get to walk through Disney World uh, to get to your workplace. That was pretty fun. That had to be an experience that probably hard to replicate. I would imagine. Oh, for sure. And what I learned about uh, customer service there, as anybody could guess, you know, like it's just. It was really, really amazing. And uh, my job, as any, probably people could guess this, or will roll their eyes at it, is uh, I worked at the Backlot Tour, which is not there anymore, which is kind of sad, but Backlot Tour. And I would get on the microphone and give like 25, it was on a tram ride, it was like 150 people at a time, and you drive around the Backlot and look at movie props and go on movie, drive through movie sets and stuff. And so I was like telling lame jokes for like 25 minutes at a time <laughs> to these exhausted uh, vacationers. And it was I'm amazing. one of those vacationers, It was yes. so awesome. I loved it so much. Uh, and my jokes got, got weirder and lamer as time went on, and I would get bored doing the same <laughs> spiel every day. But one of the customer service things that I, I learned there, I love to tell this story, is uh, they have these things called... Um, uh, magical moments cards, I think. So they're strictly for the staff, the cast members, and they keep them at the various locations where you work. And it's if you see somebody who's had a bad experience, maybe they dropped an ice cream cone, or maybe they were in line for a really long time for no good reason, or whatever it might be. Maybe they just look really tired and sweaty and hot, and they're just exhausted. I've seen plenty of parents like that. They don't look like they're having a magical time. Let's yes. put it that way. Even the lowest cast member on the totem pole, me being a college intern, I could go over to this to this thing, pull off a card, write the person's name on it, and write on there, you could go get four free ice cream cones or get a Mickey hat at the store or whatever. Like they empower everybody, everybody who works there to create these magical moments. And I think that it's so cool and something that that you can 
instill in every organization that you don't have to be the VP of XYZ in order to, to make a difference. You know, and that was a really cool thing. I'm, I'm glad I got to experience there, in addition to everything else. Of course, and it s- seems like that you might already be doing some of that in your current role, Creative Solutions, with what you talked about earlier with all the students that are helping mm-hmm. out. From my experience, because I've worked with some of these students that have come out of here. Yeah. and some outside, Andy Turner, right? Yes, Andy Turner That's and great. Jack Birchfield and oh, you yeah. know these guys. And it seems to me that you allow them the autonomy to have some creativity and bring ideas and uh, look at how they can contribute more than just taking a directive, here, you need to go do this. Yeah, yeah, which is a testament to the people, those people, I think, first and foremost, because I'd be pretty foolish if I tried to box them in too much because they're so capable. And what the, way, the metaphor that I've used is that we're a lot with a lot of this stuff, maybe not as much now. We try to stay on the cutting edge, right? Like we, we need to be new and different in order to be as valuable as possible to the athletic department, our coaches, our student athletes. So like we need to be out there on the frontier where people haven't been before. And if we're doing that, I, it's not fair for me to tell an 18 to 22. It's not fair for me to tell, you know, 19 year old Andy or Jack, hey, go do this and come back to me when it's done. So I can't, I shouldn't do that. But what, what I like to say is I need to lay down the road. I need to, I need to lay the asphalt down and draw some, some white and yellow lines on there and then just let them drive. I don't need to, tell, I don't need to be in the passenger seat saying hit the brake, hit the turn <laughs> signal. They don't need that. They can drive the car if they've got the road to drive on. And so um, every, I learned this too early on. Creatives do not like to hear, oh, it's a blank canvas, whatever you want to do. That is not helpful. It's actually very uh, discouraging to a creative. Like, constraints are helpful. Oh, interesting, because it seemed like it would be just the opposite, exactly. that the creative would want the blank canvas. You would think so, and that's why I think so many people say that. They don't want it. They know that they're the expert at creating something, and they, they're not, and they don't want to stifle your creativity. But, like, if, if I told you, here, Rich, here's a you know, two-by-two two canvas, paint a pretty picture, Versus if I gave you this infinite canvas that had no top, no bottom, and just went forever, which would you feel more confident in? Yeah, give me the smaller one. Give me the smaller one. Yes. Give me the one with the constraints on it, and then let me be creative within that. And so that was something I learned early on. So I can't just, I, I shouldn't just let them loose and say, do whatever you want. I'm not actually being helpful to them if I did that. But there's, there's a ditch on the other side of the road of, you know, being a micromanager and boxing them in and not letting the reason that they're here be the reason that they're here, you know, their, their own ideas and creativity. So the other thing I learned early on is like, if this, if this is just my ideas and whatever I come up with is not going to get that far. We stagnant. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to run out of ideas. (laughs) And so, you know, create a space where people can come up with ideas and can execute those ideas within whatever constraints we need to stay within, show them where the boundaries are and then let them go. And, you know, you mentioned two of them with Jack and Andy, but the list is very long of amazingly talented people who have come through here. There is no doubt about that. So why leave Major League Baseball, where you were working, uh-huh. to come to Clemson. What was the attraction to start a new role here at Clemson? Uh, there were two main reasons. Is one, uh, just from a career growth standpoint, there wasn't 
really an opportunity to grow with the Rays uh, beyond what I, what they had given me, which was a lot. And then my, my mom and dad and my, my older, my two sisters and her husband were still, were in Lexington, South Carolina. And so the opportunity to be closer to them, but also grow my career. And like, I didn't know a single person at Clemson. I didn't really know much at all about Clemson, but I came here on my job interview, which actually was during uh, an off day in the final week of the regular season in 2013, when we actually had a playoff team with the Rays. And uh, I came here for one day, and Tim Match was uh, was the guy who took me around. And as anybody who's ever been to Clemson can probably attest, like you just feel it. The people were uh, were different and kind, and but the opportunity to work for you know Paul was already that was in 2013. Paul was still well known. It was, it was a good quality big brand that people knew. But my goodness, to to have gone on the the journey that we've been on since then. I certainly got here at a good time, and um, it's it's been awesome to see Coach Sweeney and, and everybody here, all the student athletes and coaches for the various sports, all the amazing things that they've accomplished, and to be able to to capture and share a lot of that has, has been a lot of fun. And I, I think there's an aspect of, I mean, timing is <laughs> one of the things in life that obviously we have no control of, but it's amazing when timing is aligned, yeah. you know, for you to be here and then, Clemson, you know, goes on its run in football under Coach Sweeney, and then just the whole university itself. Yeah. You know, obviously you know, that saying that you know what all all boats rise with the tide. Yeah. You know that type of thing, and it seems like you know football really oh, yeah. was starting to do that. But then your team was also involved, I think, in some of that. Now, again, you're not impacting necessarily the play on exactly. the field, yeah. but That's I right. think to a certain degree you might be because it's these recruits that are seeing all the stuff that you're doing and now it's getting them interested in Clemson. So maybe there are some guys that are making plays out on the field that could have been impacted by some of your work. That's the idea. I always try to be real reserved in, in however I speak on it because you're exactly right. Like it's those, it's those student athletes making those plays and it's those coaches putting in the, them in those positions and like, that is the reason why why Clemson has been able to achieve this unbelievable success. But I do I am very very proud of our staff and students that when we were having these amazing uh, moments, you know, uh, incredible moments that we maximized them, we didn't miss them, and that's a big deal because I do think that in some some way that's hard to quantify, it was an element in the 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 swell, you know, and so. That's certainly the idea that we're, we're, we're sharing stuff that a recruit is being like, I got to go be a part of that. I got to see that. And, and I want to be in that. You know, when the locker room dance videos happened for the first time, how could, Magical. You, how could you not want to play <laughs> on that team? They're having a party, and, and now everybody does it. But back then, like, you weren't seeing stuff like that. And you certainly weren't seeing a head coach being in the middle of the dance party. So, like... How could you not want to be in that locker room? And how could you not want to play for that guy? He's fun. And they're winning. And so those sorts of things had been happening, but you didn't see it previously. And, uh, and so that is the, the goal, is, is, as you can attest to, and as anybody who, who went to Clemson or loves Clemson can attest, there is something in these hills. There is. Uh, uh, it's, you'll have to excuse the, uh, 
the orange-colored glasses there, but um, it's our job, which is can be challenging at times, but it's our job to try to capture that and to share that for someone who is not physically here or who hasn't physically been here before. So take campus to the recruit, explain what is it like to be a Clemson Tiger, not just showing Travis Etienne with the 90-yard touchdown run, because there's lots of ways to see that, but what, you know, what was it like when Travis Etienne moved in as a freshman? So the, all the stuff off the field and the entire experience, the entire life of a Clemson uh, student athlete, how can we capture and share that to the point that somebody's like, I gotta go see that for myself? Basically what I'm hearing you saying is that the fans that get to see that, they just get the benefit of seeing it, but you're doing it in terms of trying to get recruits' attention. Yes. To showcase Clemson, to make them interested in Clemson. So have you considered yourself, I mean, you're a salesman as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. Nobody uses that word very much in, in the college industry, not just college athletics. You know, you're a recruiter or yes, you're, you're a right. development <laughs> officer. Exactly, salesman, yeah, we're, we're going you know, down a whole different nobody path. Nobody says the word right. sales here, which is interesting because, like, my first job in minor league baseball, like, if you weren't doing something for sales, you weren't doing anything. So it's interesting, the different dynamics there. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and like any salesman, I like to sell stuff that I think is a great product. So it's not real hard to do my job because I, I think the Clemson experience is outstanding. That's not to say that there aren't other outstanding experiences across the country, but it's not, it is not hard for me to be energetic about selling what's happening here because it's a lot of good stuff, a lot of good people. So yeah, absolutely. That's another thing I like to tell college students. It's like the quicker you can learn that like your job is sales, whether it says anything about sales whether you ever realize it's anything about sales, like something in your job is related to sales. That's right. I mean, and that's why. The sooner you can degree. accept that mm-hmm. and, and then try to improve upon it and, and, and develop that skill, like you'll be a lot better off because that really is in everyone's job, uh, whether you realize it or not. And nobody goes to school saying, I'm going to be a salesman. Agreed. You know, but lots of them come out and have to be that's right. salespeople. So they, they sure do. I, that's another one of those that like, I've learned through experience that since I learned it, I've just been a lot, it makes, it sharpens, you know, the view of things. What have you learned over the past year based on obviously the current situation with COVID and not being able to necessarily... Mm grab the content that you need to really promote and how it's forced you to look at different ways and talk about trying to have a different lens in terms of creativity. Yeah. What have you learned through this whole process? It's a great question. And like, um, to just be candid about it, like I'm, there weren't great answers to it. The thing that, uh, that I would describe now, now that we're starting to get on the other side, I, I would comfortably say that we're starting to get on the other side of it from the content perspective specifically. Now, I'm not talking about the general pandemic, but as we get on the other side of it for how it, it practically applies here, there was fun was missing from the content over the course of the last year, which is, again, a hard thing to quantify. But I think one of the th- reasons why people gravitated to our stuff so much, why people gravitate to our, towards our program, because we're not manufacturing that. Like I said, we're just showing what happens, and it is fun. People are having fun over there. A lot of that was missing. And I think that's because, in truth, a lot of the fun was missing. from. And it's not unique to, to any of our programs here. Everybody all over the world was struggling through, through that. And so something as simple, I said this in a, in a 
webinar the other day. Some of the, you couldn't see people smile. You know, think about that. And, and if one of the big reasons why our content was good is because you, it, it was fun and people were having fun in it, and you can't even see people smile, like that has a big impact on it. And so there were some things that we tried to do. Like it wasn't for lack of effort and trying to come up with different ideas and different ways to, to do things. But it was missing uh, point blank period, and there, there wasn't a whole lot that we could do to, to replicate that. Wow. And access, to, to directly answer your question, access was much more difficult. You couldn't have cameras around. You couldn't pass a vlog rig around, for instance, where you, you'd say, hey, take the camera and say something to the camera. You couldn't do that, you know, unless you were walking around with some Clorox wipes and, <laughs> and doing that. And, uh, and even, like, if people weren't wearing the mask correctly while they were in a workout, like, we couldn't show it, you know. And, and so, like, there was just, there were so many limitations on what we would normally do, uh, which is, not, again, not unique to our little slice of the industry. Everybody was dealing with limitations. But uh, it was very real, and it was very hard to try to find alternative uh, ways around it. And so access was a big thing, and the fun just seemed to be missing. Speaking of those smiles, what do you think, or why do you think sports makes people have that, that smile that you see at sporting events? I mean, obviously you can have the, the ups and downs, but... I think there's a factor that sports brings happiness to people. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Uh, you and I were talking about before we started recording here, like uh, trying to be concise. And so I wish I could give you a really concise <laughs> answer on that. And I don't know that I've ever actually been asked it. And I love that question. And the things that immediately come to mind for me are a couple of different elements. Is one is like communal. You know, so like there's something about everybody wearing orange and rooting for the, the home team. You know, there's there's that element to it. There's the awe of it, seeing people do things that you can't do. You know, Jeff Callen, our director of communications, I have talked about, like, seeing somebody dunk a basketball. Like, most people can't do that. And so watching something that you could never do yourself, uh, that entertainment aspect of it is interesting. And like, like we were saying earlier, there is absolutely some built-in storytelling to it. You know, it's got Act 1, Act 2, Act 3 just naturally built into it that, you got good guys, you got bad guys, you got heroes, you got villains, you have conflict, and you have a resolution. And I think people are, as, as evidenced by stories lasting as long as they have, and by books and movies and music and all this stuff being, being such an integral part of our lives, like storytelling, people gravitate towards it. And those three things are what immediately come to mind, is, is the, the community aspect of it, the, the entertainment, the awe of it, seeing people do things that, that are amazing, seeing Trevor Lawrence throw a football 60 yards, that is amazing to, to watch. And then uh, and the story, the natural built-in storytelling to it is, those are three things that come to mind. For yeah, me. a lot of times some of these uh, sporting events, it's like a movie plot in itself. It is. And just how amazing. The best ones are. Yes. The, the reasons why, like think about it, nobody really likes exhibition games, right? Exactly. Because there's not, the storytelling is not there because there's nothing on the line. There's no <laughs> real conflict. But all it takes is a, you know, a meaningful game, and all of a sudden you have a built-in story there that's naturally interesting. You definitely do. All right, as we're wrapping up here, when you have these young students coming through and they're looking to you as a mentor, what words of wisdom do you give them? And is there any phrases or quotes or mottos that, has made an impact in your life. And it could just be even life advice as well that yeah. you know, has been 
important to you? Yeah, uh, I've lots of times I try to be, I try to not have a one size fits all answer, and I try to apply to whatever I think that specific person might might benefit from hearing the most. But some common things that I say, I, I, I mentioned I've I've benefited from amazing mentors. If you think about the coaches that I worked for, for instance, um, or like my bosses, you know, Walt, Walt Disney was the one who created Walt Disney World, my, fir- my first, you know, kind of like legitimate job. And his, his thing was, you know, creating these magical experiences for people. And so caring about creating, you know, caring, caring about people having a good experience, that's really been embedded in me early on that I try to, I try to transition that to other folks. Then I went to, um, Ripken Baseball, working in minor league baseball, and Cal was such a great leader, and his dad, Earl Ripken, had the Ripken way about how they taught baseball, how you played baseball was the Ripken way, and two of the things I learned there was um, show what good looks like, our, our topic from earlier of like, if you want somebody to do something a certain way, show them that certain way, don't just expect them to, to know how to do it, so show them what good looks like, and then explain the why. If you want someone, to, if you tell somebody to do something, explain why it's important to do. Don't just say, "Hey, go do this," because if the person understands the meaning behind it and the impact that it can have, then they can invest it, uh, invest in it, and own in it, and and care about it more, and the work will be better. So explain the why, show what it looks like. Then I went to Joe Madden with the Tampa Bay Rays, the legendary you know baseball manager, and he only had one rule. That was it. His one rule was run hard to first base. <laughs> it was his only rule. I'm not kidding. A coach with only one rule, run hard to first base. But he said that if you do that, that permeates the rest of everything that you do. If you're willing to sprint out, you know, a ground ball or pop-up, that mindset will, will take care of everything else that we, we do here. I love that. And he was an amazing leader. And then you got Coach Sweeney, the next coach I worked with, and, and totally different, right? I remember my first meeting, team meeting at the Orange Bowl when we were playing Ohio State in 2013 or 2014. He, I'm pretty sure, I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure there were 37 rules uh, <laughs> on, on the PowerPoint of that team meeting. I was like, how is everybody going to remember these rules? So it was very different from Joe Madden, but outstanding leaders in their own way. And uh, what I've learned from him is like, show the people you're responsible for that you care. Like, how could anybody question whether that guy cares about his players or not and his staff or not? Like, he cares, and nobody ever has any doubt about that. And do you want to work hard for the boss who cares about you? Yes, you do. You know, the reason why you don't like your boss, you feel like they don't care about you, they're, they're not doing anything to help you. Like, that guy cares. And so, like, I've, I've, I've had all those amazing people that I've worked with that have learned all those different lessons along the way. And then just personally, you know, it depends. If somebody's expressed to me, of their faith and their belief in Jesus, then, then I'll bring that up because to me, you know, on a personal note to set aside the professional side of things, nothing will help you more than Jesus Christ. Nothing will help you more than opening up the Bible every single morning and reading the Bible. Like, this is a hard world to live in. There's, there's, there's just a lot of things that will beat you down, and he is the answer to, to all of it. You know, he can give you strength in, in the hardest of times, and I wish that my entire life I had I had had that conviction and had been and had used that you know committed my life that way and and had that as as something to lean on because I, I haven't always had that and I could have been better off at some of those those harder times because uh, guarantee the hard times are going to come 
but if I'm committed to, to serving him and have that long view, both for myself and my family, then, uh, you know, you can withstand anything. Anything. That, that comes here. So, I, uh, I feel the same way. I, I, was, I was 37 years old when I developed my relationship with Christ. Yeah. And there's definitely a lot of times I think back, man, those are some hard 37 years. Yeah. Uh, you know, and what could have been if I would have had that foundation you know, over that period of time. Oh, yeah. But you are where you are now, yeah. right? And that's the way you have to think of it, you know, from that perspective. Absolutely. So I agree with you from the, the Christ standpoint and what he can do, not only in good and bad times. Yeah. So there's a student who's expressed something like that previously. You know, I, I don't bring it up, but if they brought it up, that's what I reinforced. And I was like, look, I could tell you any of this other stuff, but it all pales in comparison to that is the best I could, advice I could give you. Wake up and read the Bible before you do anything else. You'll be okay. Agreed 100%. Yeah. Jonathan, thank you so we much. We covered a lot. There. We sure My did. Goodness. Yes, and I think I've probably ran over our time. So <laughs> hopefully I'm not going to make you too late for your next activity, but. It's been an honor, and again, you've been part of this podcast from the very beginning, and long overdue that you've been a guest, so thank Uh, you. My pleasure. It's been awesome to see you you, uh, develop it and uh, all the progress that you've made. Big fan, so I'm glad things are going well for you. Thanks for having me. One thing certain that we see in sports is the storytelling and the power that it represents to capture us as fans, and it's evident that Jonathan has been able to understand how to creatively capture that side of sports, and not just him, but the team around him, as he's now in a position of being a mentor to so many, giving his time because he had mentors that gave him their time. Now that finishes episode 154, and you can also watch some of our episodes by visiting our Rich Take on Sports YouTube channel. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.